It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know what's coming up first in today's show, Clark Stinks. Also today, a lot of conversation about the advantages of trade schools and apprenticeships. I've got some new resources for you to help yourself or to help a family member or friend get on a new career path that can make them more money, give them more career mobility, and doesn't involve college. So we're going to talk about that. But right now, we're going to talk about how I did not deliver for you. It's what we call Clark Stinks. It's where you get to hear where I messed up and make suggestions how my answers could be better or correct something that I'm mistaken about your opinion. And so Krista goes through all the Clark Stinks posts each week that are at clark.com slash Clark Stinks. You post where you feel like what I've said doesn't ring true with you or you feel I'm off base. And then Krista picks highlights to share with you right here, right now. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Your favorite part of the week. You know, I was thinking now that we've been together, working together for 25 years, we should one Clark Stinks just have you Give no all way. the things over the 25 years that are things that you're like. I would have I got, nothing to say. That is not true. I, I've got, I would have nothing to say. All right. But, but a lot of people had something to say about this. We had somebody write in about TRICARE and having to give your social security number to use that in the military. I do remember that. And they wrote in about this. Um, there is a benefit number on the back of an eligible DOD ID that can be used by medical providers to process claims. There is no need to provide a social security number if not desired. Additionally, providers are restricted and cannot make a copy of a military ID, also the TRICARE card, and they can only write down the number J. Jay, thanks to you. You and everyone else who wrote in about, you know, my, uh, I mean, I'm fixated on this about medical providers never having your social security number because they represent roughly half of all identity breaches in the United States because medical may be good at improving your health or saving your life. They're lousy at protecting their records and data. That's why I never want the social security number given. And I'm so glad that there is this medical record number ID that you can give from TRICARE. It's good to never, ever willingly give up your social security number unless it's an obviously legitimate reason. And for medical, it is obvious it's not something you should give it for. Clark smells like kiwi bird poo. Clark mentioned the benefits of cancel for any reason travel insurance so many times that I was absolutely sold on getting it for an upcoming trip to New Zealand. However, when I tried to purchase it, I found out that because I had made my first deposit on the tour fee a year ago, I was not eligible for the policy from any provider. When you advocate for people to buy a CFAR policy, please include the heads up that these policies require purchase within 14 to 21 days of your initial trip deposit, Ellen. Ellen, thank you for that. Let me add an annex to that. 
with many trip insurance policies, if you don't buy within that window, typically, as Ellen said, first 14 days after an initial payment or 21 days, depending on the policy, you also aren't covered for pre-existing conditions. If you buy under most trip policies, if you buy within that initial window, even pre-existings are typically covered. You go past that time period, pre-existings normally are not covered. Please stop giving your uninformed opinions on what's happening in the USPS. (laughs) As a nearly 20-year postal employee, this is the first postmaster that we've had in my time that is actually trying to right-size the operations and address the long, broken postal model. The USPS is understaffed in many areas across the country, and that has more to do with the starting wages than anything. And that's from Tom. Tom, thank you. The Postal Service has always been an awkward organization, always, I'm talking about in the, in the modern era, because the way people communicate with each other has changed so much. The whole e-commerce thing has been just totally disruptive to the postal model. And so it is a very difficult process to modernize the Postal Service, particularly with all the interference with the Congress. The Congress expects so much of the Postal Service then interferes so much with their operations. As an example, having all these post offices that are just so a congressman can be there cutting the ribbon at a new post office that may not really be needed. And so it's a difficult agency to turn around because of the political overlay of it. I mean, think about the Postal Service goes all the way back and had such an important essential role in the ability for people to communicate in colonial days and then forward. And so I'm sorry that I've been so hard on DeJoy. I just feel like he has uh, done some things I've not been excited about. I'm sure if you're of average size, it's easy to not support legislation for minimum available leg room on aircraft. Some of us are tall with long legs. I must carefully fold my legs to get them into the space allowed. Then there's no room to move them. Another issue when I get my legs folded is that the occupant of the seat in front of me can suddenly recline, driving the seat back directly into my knees. I do understand that leg room is minimized for profit, and it's generally fine for most average height people, but there are a number of us who do have difficulty. Making that space for legs even smaller is a terrible idea. Yes, I'm in favor of legislation. Maybe if they can have a few seats on each flight with a little more leg room. And yes, I do get the exit row seating when I can, David. David, thank you. I'm trying to remember when we've had more impassioned responses than what I said about the government legislating seat size on airplanes. I mean, think how many posts we've had about that. So, the airlines are all responding to the market and there's a certain segment of people who just want the cheapest fare and the airlines are segmenting the cabins where there's all these different sections uh some airlines call it even more space others call it like delta calls it delta comfort i think or something like that they're plus comfort plus so they're all doing these things where you get the leg room that you used to get in coach on airlines but you have to pay more to sit in that seat that has the extra legroom, or in your case, lucky enough to get the emergency exit row. And yes, when I'm 
in crunch class. It's uncomfortable, and I'm always seeking the economy exit row or bulkhead where there's extra legroom, and it is a problem. So that's why the airlines are now saying, okay, you want nothing but the cheapest rock gut fare? We got that. You want something that gives you a little more room? We got that, but you're going to have to pay for it. To me, that's the marketplace solution. Clark only sort of stinks on this one. When answering a question about tires, he talked about his need for a blown up photo to read the sidewall and then briefly mentioned the metal plate describing the car's recommended pressures if the tires are the OEMs. And that was in quotes from you. The tire placard is usually not a metal plate, just a sticker. And the recommended pressure works for any replacement tire unless the owner changes the tire size. The pressure marked on the sidewall of tires is the pressure corresponding to the maximum load. It is not the maximum allowed pressure pressure and end users should stick to the placard if the tire size changes from an oem a tire professional can easily generate a revised target pressure i've been a tire engineer for 30 years pat pat thank you very much for clarifying what i said and i really appreciate that also if you live in a part of the country as we move into colder temperatures your tires are more likely to be underinflated. modern cars may pop up with that tire symbol saying you need air in the tires it's really true you as you get to colder weather you're going to need to really pay attention to make sure that your tires are not underinflated. Okay, and two about class action lawsuits. First one, you mentioned they are not worth the time because your return is less than the effort you put into filing a claim. I disagree. Typically, a class action lawsuit is filed because of a legitimate claim against a business or manufacturer. It is worth pursuing all claims because wrong is wrong, and it is the business's responsibility to make it right. While a vast majority of claims will result in little or no compensation, it's the principle that matters. We have to hold businesses accountable for bad decisions. I once filed a claim against one of the monster megabanks that engaged in shady business practices, and the claim resulted in a significant amount paid to claimants. You just never know. And that's from Dale. And then this one from Julie. Money was very tight when I was newly divorced. On a Tuesday, I was down to my last $17, and payday wasn't until Friday. It was very stressful. When I checked the mail that evening, there was an odd-looking envelope that I almost didn't open. Thank goodness I did because it contained a check for about $225 from a class action lawsuit. I had completely forgotten about filling out the random postcard months before, but it sure felt like I had an angel on my shoulders that day. And so Julie just thought you'd enjoy that story. Julie, that's awesome. $225. Have you ever done one that was that kind of money? No way. Wow. Um, I hope that you're solidly back on your feet again. And uh, I know you went through a tough time going through the divorce. I hope everything's great in your life today. I won't say Clark stinks, but on renter's insurance, he didn't smell as good as he should have. He didn't mention the personal liability coverage that is part of a renter's policy, which pays others if you're liable for bodily injury or property damage. If you cause a fire or water damage, not just to your apartment, but to other units in the building... Uh, please revisit this topic and let your listeners know about this very important coverage. They should also purchase the highest liability limits they can afford. It is likely only a few dollars more. Carolyn. Carolyn, thank you. That is great advice. You know, I only talked about when I talked about the renter's insurance, only talked about relocation assistance, your possessions, that kind of stuff. And the liability side is always very important. There are renters 
who don't have any significant assets, and there are people who rent who do have significant assets, and then the liability coverage becomes very, very important in the latter case. There is, this has barely an odor. I am responding with more info regarding the opinion of use, the option of using a mediator in an amicable or fairly amicable divorce. Great advice. However, I feel compelled to add something more as the facilitator of a divorce support group for over 10 years. If you do use a mediator, it is imperative that you pay different and independent divorce lawyer a one-time flat fee to review the decree and see if anything was missed or is wrong. It's a very helpful and necessary extra step to protect yourself. And that's from Jennifer. And uh, Jennifer, thank you. And this has been an ongoing conversation where people have been trying to avoid the adversarial kind of thing that can happen in a divorce. And we... We've had different comments almost week by week that have added to the conversation about ways to make a very, very difficult moment in your life. And if you have young children and the children's lives to make it in some ways less painful than it would be otherwise. And I appreciate all those of you who've taken time to write in with your suggestions. And this is in response to the story about women in the gig industry making 50% less than men. I'm frustrated with these stories, not because women don't deserve the same pay for the same work, but because I find them to be untrue or at best hard to believe. Explain to me how in this capitalistic system, you would hire one person, a male, for twice the cost of another, a female. If the above quoted statistic is correct, men would be unemployed. And that's from Joe. Joe, thank you. Okay, so... Gig work is really a bad term for it. It's not like somebody working for Uber or Lyft or working for the various food delivery apps. I've never used one, so I don't know the names of all of them. But like Uber has one called Uber Eats Mm -hmm. and whoever else. Then when you work for those, you get paid what you get paid. The algorithms don't care if you're male or female. What this is about is people who work as freelancers that uh, some of it seems to be on women that women don't ask for money as comfortably as men ask for money. There may be discrimination based on gender in the employment world for people that are independent contractors, but some of it is where we may not be good at being our own advocate and asking for as much. Nobody knows, Joe, how much of the difference of what women make is independent contractors, is freelancers versus men, how much of it is on the hiring sides offering women less money? How much is it that women are asking for less? The point is there's a clear gap in what men and women are earning doing similar work as an independent contractor or freelancer. And so I think it's got to be in this area maybe where women just aren't as good asking for it because we already know from studies that women aren't as good asking for raises at a regular job as men, that women are more circumspect about asking for raises. And what happens, you don't ask, you don't get, right? So I don't know where, how much goes to all the different areas for responsibility for this, but the reality is it needs to start with each individual being a good advocate for himself or herself. Okay, speaking of employment, 
there are a lot of people who college just doesn't ring true with them. But the job you're doing, you're not going anywhere. It feels dead-ended. I want to talk about ways for you, because if you're going to college, there's information everywhere about colleges, all these guidebooks, websites, everything. But you want to do something non-college that you can earn a decent payout? There's really not a lot of information available, but I've got some sources for you that could get you on a nice new career track I'm going to share with you next. College is something that more and more people are saying, not for me, I'm not going to spend all that money for a credential that doesn't get me a job that I didn't need to go to college for. Now, college, people are really down on college these days. And truth be told, a lot of times people who get a college degree in a liberal arts field struggle to find their way, particularly in their 20s. You look over the long cycle of lifetime employment and college graduates eventually do find their way and tend typically to make very decent income with much lower levels of unemployment over a working lifetime than people who don't have a college degree. But it is a struggle and the student loan thing obviously is real. I mean, we wouldn't be having all this national debate about the whole loan forgiveness thing if it weren't just this massive burden that's been weighing on so many people. And then people who didn't go to college are like, wait, why am I paying for them? So, I mean, I get it. And so a lot of people are looking, what's the alternative? What's education that will lead to a good career path? And I'm not going to be stuck with all these loans and all the rest. Well, apprenticeships are something I've been obsessed with forever because a number of countries, Germany more than any other, have been powerhouses economically because they offered people alternative paths of skill, not necessarily college. Ironically enough, a lot of college in Germany is free, but a lot of people don't go to college. They go and they get a specific skill, typically through an apprenticeship while they're getting paid to learn, and then they go to work in that field. And in the United States, we're like, hey, you know what? This apprenticeship thing, hmm, that may actually work. And what does it lead to? All right, so a lot of the fields, these are what are known as middle-skilled jobs. That's how economists describe them. And to me, they're really high-skilled because I think about being an electrician. I mean, I would make a direct connection with the power company on my first day, I would be fried like a crispy critter. I'd be like, oh, I forgot to turn that off. Huh? I mean, <laughs> talk about somebody who should never do anything involving high voltage electrical or any electrical. That's me because I wouldn't make it. Plumber. These kind of jobs tend to pay in the 60s as typical kind of salary. You become an owner of a company. Gosh, who knows what you can end up making. Lots of jobs that require training short of college or vocational school, technical college, state support technical college, they pay good money. Heating and air conditioning contractor. You become an HVAC technician, you can do that the path of apprenticeship, just like with electrician or plumber. You can do that with going to a state-supported technical college. Again, 
similar pay. Being a physical therapy assistant, similar pay. One I did not expect, a trained chef makes similar money. Paralegal, similar kind of money. Long list here. And if doing a trade school is appealing to you, there's a site. I don't know who developed this site. It's learnhowtobecome.org. And you can see all the different careers that don't require college, but require some kind of education or training. And it goes through the trade school, where you go, what kind of money you might make, that kind of stuff. And then the Department of Labor has a new website just for apprenticeships that goes through all the apprenticeships out there. People who do apprenticeship programs, according to their research, earn an average salary of 77000 a year. I mean, that's good money, right? Seventy-seven grand, and what percent of people go through an apprenticeship program make it in that is a career field? Ninety-three percent. So this is a viable path out of something that may feel mind-numbing or dead-ended to look at apprenticeships, to look at what you can do in a trade school. The apprenticeship site the feds have is apprenticeship.gov. Remember, it's a .gov. And you go there and you learn about what's known as a registered apprenticeship, which is very much like the German system. And all the fields that it's in, they've got a list on the right-hand rail showing you all the fields that have registered apprenticeships. And look through, see what appeals to you. See if this is an area that would work for you where you could have a new solid career path. Remember, don't just taste money. It's got to be something that speaks to you that you would enjoy. Krista? All right. This first question is from Scott in Oklahoma. Our business of about 90 employees received notice that our internet, email, and office phone provider is canceling email hosting services. Can you recommend any email hosting service provider? We've not had luck with big cable companies and other big companies, so I want to avoid them. So I really like Google Workspace. We use We that. love it. Yeah, yeah. it's how great. Much, how much does it cost us a month? Um, it's, it depends on your plan, but it starts at $12 per user per month. But you get the email, calendar, the integrated systems, the drive where everybody can share files with each other. It replaces everything you would... You get, you know, Google Docs and everything are free anyway, but it's that shared workspace thing that we just love. We don't need any Microsoft products at all. And we used a different one for a while and have been much happier with this. I like using a third party instead of being hosted by your phone provider, internet service provider, anything like that, so that you're a free agent with who you get for your internet backbone at your business. And then also there, are, whoever you bought your domain through, like say GoDaddy, a lot of times they'll offer services to set up your email too, just depending on what your other needs are. I'm not sure if you need all the stuff. A that company Workspace of the size... You that Scott has with 90 employees, 
probably needs an enterprise kind of solution yeah. like Google Workspace. We do love it. Kelly in South Carolina says, I recently changed jobs and my new employer does not offer health insurance. I've already purchased medical and vision insurance on the marketplace. Now I need dental insurance. Do you recommend or what can you tell me about a membership plan at a dental office? Would I be better off purchasing a traditional dental insurance plan from the marketplace? Yes, buy from the marketplace. And in the marketplace, you've got two options. Dental insurance never covers a lot. Let me make that clear. But you'll have the choice of the more comprehensive plan or the no frills. The no frills premiums are extremely low. All it really covers is teeth cleanings. I mean, when you get down to it. So you want to go with the comprehensive and unusual with the healthcare.gov marketplace where individuals buy coverage is that insurers of your health policy are allowed to also offer dental insurance as part of that. And obviously the health insurer you got did not offer that, but you can buy on healthcare.gov the dental insurance as a separate thing. And that's what I would do. I'm not a fan of the membership plans offered by the dental practices. From Kelly in Missouri, Sam's Club recently announced an increase in their yearly fee. Can I defer the fee increase for a year by paying for membership renewal before the fee increase goes into effect on October 17th? Yeah, so this has been something that I've been very pleased with how Sam's Club has handled this. They announced it well in advance, and you could, Kelly, likely renew your next year and you do that manually, you go on Sam's Club site. I did that immediately Mm -hmm. and renewed. And it it may not be necessary because Sam's Club gave a gift for the first year of the higher rates. They're giving you the increase as like a voucher for shopping. So as long as you shop at Sam's sometime in the year, you're not going to lose that first year the increase in the price. So Sam's Club has been charging a lot less than Costco for memberships. They're going for their basic from 45 to 50. So they're giving you $5 of play money to use there if you, the first renewal after the increase, or you can do what I did, renew before at the old rate. I'm a plus member. So my plus is going from 100 to 110. But for me, I shop enough at Sam's Club I get back so much stuff from them that being the plus member is great. One of the wonderful things about being a plus member, you may wonder, have I lost my mind saying, yippee, I'm so excited to pay 100 now and 110 at my next renewal. You get free delivery on most everything in the store. So you get the store price almost always. Sometimes they'll play a little bit of games with the price, but usually it's the store price and the free delivery, where with Costco, when you, even if you're the highest level Costco member, an executive member, as they have it now, you still pay much higher prices for items that you have delivered to you. So Sam's Club, if you like delivery, is offering a much better deal than Costco. But in either case, you can renew early, and get the old price before October 17th. Or you can just pay the increase rate, but know that this first year, they're giving you back 
the money that you're paying extra, the 10 extra or five extra, depending on which membership level, they're giving it back to you in free shopping, basically. So you net out this first year at the same membership cost. Now, Costco normally, any moment now, may come out with their increase. And so far, I've not seen it. But Costco generally uses a cycle of increasing membership fees every so many years. And this would likely be a cycle year for increase. We'll see if it happens. And if you hear the podcast, you're like, Clark, they increased the membership yesterday. You missed it. Um, That could happen. But we'll see if Costco holds the line for another year or they go ahead and push through an increase. And I want to thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I want you to join other money savers in our Clark.com community. And it's at community.clark.com where you all share ideas with each other. And know everything we're about is about being a member of Team Clark, getting assistance from each other, getting assistance from us. Uh, You may not be aware that for just short of 30 years, We've provided free one-on-one advice and information and guidance. If there's a problem you've got, a question you've got, and we do that 30 hours each week, you can see how to do that for free at clark.com slash CAC.